Welcome to the Nonprofit Growth Show, presented by Nonprofit Megaphone, the podcast where we highlight nonprofit leaders in the trenches who share the strategies and tactics they use to grow their organizations and make a difference each day. As we like to say, if you want to be discouraged by a general sense of decay, read the news. But if you want to be inspired by concrete stories of growth, talk to a nonprofit. Here's to the modern day superheroes, the nonprofit leaders. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. We're here with Christina Wallace. She's the Director of Development and Operations at Camp Del Corazon. Christina, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, we are excited to jump in. Our tradition here has been that we like to just dive straight into the deep end with a story. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a story of maybe a dramatic or stressful or exciting time in your development career. And we'd love to for you to take us back to that moment and explain what all happened. Sure. It's uh Hard to come up with something dramatic, I think, in development, because I think it's dramatic to us. But um, one of the things that I was reminded of was um, right in the transition between George W. Bush and Barack Obama, there was during the Great Recession, there was this huge release of um, stimulus money and stimulus packages that would go to FQHCs, which are federally qualified healthcare centers to help stimulate um, community healthcare centers and help bridge the gap for those not receiving healthcare. And I had literally just started as the senior grant writer for a community healthcare center here in Los Angeles. We had various community clinics throughout the area, including Skid Row. And <laughs> they hired me knowing I was capable, but I didn't necessarily have the most experience with federal grants. I had county grants, city grants, small government grants, but FQHC stimulus package grants are over a million dollars. They're highly competitive. They are dozens and dozens and dozens of pages long. And it was medical jargon, which was also a new field for grant writing to me. And they said, oh, you basically have a few weeks to get in this million dollar proposal <laughs> for this new stimulus package. Learn, figure it out. And I had already planned a trip to go to the inauguration in DC. <laughs> so um, basically I wrote the grant at a coffee shop in DC and on the airplane and learned as I went, which is really only possible because of the boss I had and the other, my other peers at the organization who were more than happy to, um, approach it as a team. Um, the medical director who spelled out medical jargon for me. Um, and we got that grant out and, um, we got it. We got over a million dollars to help open a, a flagship um, service center in Skid Row, but it was really, um, you know, uh, trial by fire. Is that the term? So I learned on the job in the um, most high stakes way possible um, because if you fail, you don't get to open up a healthcare clinic. So that was my first foray into huge federal government grant writing proposals. Incredible. That is so cool. I can attest <laughs> trial by fire is, in fact, the correct term for that type of experience. Yes. Sometimes I get my cliches wrong. So. <laughs> no, that's remarkable. Wow. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. And I'd love to hear some about your background. You've had a variety of cool experiences. Um, I'd love to hear about the journey that brought you to where you are now today. Uh, yes. Well, I started in nonprofit as a volunteer in college. Well, I started volunteering in high school, but in, in college at UCLA, I signed up 
my freshman year for an organization called UCLA Unicamp. And it's a nonprofit summer camp program for low income and foster children in Los Angeles. And it's been around since 1934. It's just this beautiful tradition at UCLA. Um, and it's a great little family. So sort of once you start volunteering with them, you're, you're a lifer. They call you a woodsy and you, you're just a woodsy for the rest of your life. But I started there at 18 and then just sort of became a camp counselor and then worked my way, way up through volunteer leadership as a head counselor and things like that. And then when I was a junior or senior or something like that, they offered me a part-time job in the office, which was in the basement of a free, you know, sort of cubicle room they had. And, um, I helped put on some special events and, you know, worked for four bucks an hour. And, um, then after I graduated, they said, would you like a full-time job? And I said, sure. And that was the start of my nonprofit career. And, um, I started off in programs and just doing, um, signing up all the campers for camp each summer, about a thousand kids each summer. This is before the internet. And so you had to process a thousand paper forms. Um, and signing up about 300 or 400 volunteers each summer. So I started doing program services that way, worked my way up through a couple different organizations doing direct services, um, basically social work positions. Um, and it accumulated with me being a, a, for all intents and purposes, a social worker at a um, independent living facility for low-income seniors in Santa Monica and opening up a intergenerational center for my homeless youth and my low income senior citizens. And it was just this beautiful program. Um, but after four years there, I realized I don't think I'm cut out for direct services anymore. One, I was exhausted and mostly mentally and, um, psychologically, it was a lot of, you know, I, I would have seniors who would have strokes in the middle of the night who I happened to check on and, and catch them before something worse could happen. And I would always run through my head like, what if I didn't check on them? And mm -hmm. what if the worst had happened? And I just, some people are made of more grit than me. And I just couldn't handle the stress of it. I was so scared all the time of one of my seniors being hurt it, because it was because of my fault or something like that. So I started asking my um, development director at the time, can I learn from you? Can I shadow you? Can I help you write, write some grants and learn development? and and they did. They let me help write some grants and teach me the ways and showed me HUD contracts. And, um, and then from there, I just sort of self-taught, but only self-taught because of really generous, um, mentors and peers. And then I just moved into development from there. Uh, I went back to UCLA Unicamp as their development director. And then I've been in development ever since. That is incredible and so fun that you began in a camp type context and now um, anyway, that's just cool. It's cool symmetry. I would love to learn more about Camp Del Corazon and about the organization and maybe if there's stories you could share about um, the impact it's having. That would be wonderful to hear. Sure. Camp Del Corazon has been around since 1995 and it is a uh, year-round educational and experiential program for children affected and living with congenital heart defects, um, which is one of the biggest um, heart defects in babies, um, but it's also a really underserved population of kids. So um, I like to tell how it was founded because I think that tells a lot about um, the vision of the organization and how it was started is, is still how it's run, which is um, 
1995, a pediatric cardiologist here at UCLA Medi- um, Children's Hospital, um, the Mattel, it's now called the Mattel Children's Hospital, Dr. Kevin Shannon, was meeting with one of his um, pediatric patients post-operative. And Dr. Shannon is sort of, and still to this day, very idealistic and um, positive. And he was very excited to meet with this young man because he'd essentially, for all intents and purposes, fixed him. He'd fixed his heart defect. He could essentially start living a normal life. And he was really sort of, I think, taken aback during the um, post-operative visit when the young man just sort of displayed some um, some characteristics of a child that wasn't quite happy. Um, he was still sort of excuse the pun, scarred from having this um, surgery and from growing up with this congenital heart condition. Um, he would, he, uh, Dr. Shannon realized he went through this sort of elaborate technique at school. So he never had to take off his shirt in front of other kids. Mm. He would like wear a shirt under a shirt and then change for PE. He had this whole weird technique of showing Dr. Shannon his incision without taking off his shirt. Um, he was still very withdrawn. All these sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, a PTSD sort of <laughs> um, characteristics. Sure. And Dr. Shannon went back to his nurse, um, nurse Lisa Knight, to talk to her about it after the appointment and said, I was so sad. Like, I, I think there's something, I wish there was something we could do for these kids. Um, and so they basically got to searching around. This is the mid nineties. And they found this camp for children with CHD and they said, this is just what he needs to be around other kids like him, um, gain some confidence, um, not feel so out of place and really be free to just be a kid and not feel so, you know, weird and just be normal. Um, the only problem was the only, the closest camp was in Louisiana oh, wow. and this is here in Los Angeles. So, um, they said, well, we'll, we'll try. Um, so they went to his mom and of course she said, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not sending my child who just had open heart surgery <laughs> to Louisiana. Um, and so Lisa Knight, the nurse, um, if you ever knew Lisa, this is not just a story that looks good on our materials. This is very Lisa. Lisa says, well, we can do it. Um, we can do that. So she said, let's start our own camp. <laughs> so, um, they did. They started their own camp. Um, and that was in 1995. They started off with about less than 50 kids that summer. They took them to Catalina Island um, for a few days. And it's grown steadily to last year, we served over 350 kids with CHD. We take them over to a campsite that we lease on Catalina Island. Um, and it basically all started because they assessed a need from their patient wanted to help him genuinely. Um, and there wasn't a, a really viable option. So they did it themselves. And, um, so for 25 plus years, they've been doing that. And we also have some, uh, like an educational symposium. We have a transitional aged youth program for kids transitioning into adulthood, adulthood and learning self care. Um, so we basically try to serve, these kids and their families year round, but our primary program is our summer camping program. Absolutely incredible. That is such a cool founding story. Thank you for sharing that. And it's wild how many different iterations or how many different, they had to push deeper. They saw the problem and then, okay, maybe there could be a camp. Okay. But the camp is in Louisiana. And so now anyway, that's (laughs) so impressive. And I feel like so many of us would have given up at stage two or three of 
uh, I guess we just can't do it. So. And if you knew Lisa, that was, it just, it was like her to just not see all the problems, but she was just very idealistic. And it literally started, there's old pictures of them on the floor of her living room in an apartment in Van Nuys running the entire organization. So to this day, we actually run out of, she converted her garage into an office and we work out of her garage. It's a very sweet, cute little office, um, but it's still a little homegrown organization that serves a lot of kids, um, but remains grassroots. That's beautiful. Okay. That's wonderful. And then let's shift the conversation to talk about fundraising and development. Are there ex, um, are there strategies or tactics or things that you've found to be particularly helpful that maybe other people would benefit from experimenting with in their own contexts as well? Um, in terms of experimenting, I've done a few. There, there was one experiment we did at UCLA Unicamp where we, because I said, like I mentioned before, once you're a woodsy, you're always a woodsy. And people are like married to woodsies and they have woodsy children and things like this. So, you know, we'll have 80, 90 year olds that still remember their time at Unicamp so fondly and owe a lot of their social network to the friends they made there. Um, so when I was there, I decided, let, let's try this thing called an alumni session. Where So usually you have to be a UCLA student and the sessions are run by UCLA students. And we, but so many old folks like myself still missed that feeling of being a camp counselor. Um, and we couldn't obviously divert funds that we raise for this student-run program to an alumni session. So I used it as a fundraiser and said, we'll do this alumni session where all the counselors will be alumni. And there's no age limit. You can be from 23 to however old you want to be. Um, we'll still do your background checks and we'll still do a training and things like that. And we'll do um, several of our alumni worked in social service organizations. And they said, well, we'll take the kids from my agency. So it was a perfect buy-in. And I said, the only catch is we have to raise $30,000 to put this session on ourselves because we can't divert any of these funds raised. And um, it was really fun. And we had no problem getting enough volunteers. And we did good old fashioned fundraising. Um, and we raised $30,000. And it paid for the session. We, all, we were able to serve more kids through this um, without diverting other um, fundraising dollars. And it also served to engage this whole population of alumni back into the program and reinvest them into the mission. So I loved the whole thing of it. It just from A to Z served its purpose in terms of program and serving our mission, but also reengaging our donors and constituents. Absolutely brilliant. That is so cool. And probably something that many organizations, maybe they don't have as strong an alumni network of previous mm -hmm. volunteers, but... I suspect many organizations could do something similar. That is fascinating. I love it. Okay, let's jump now into our sort of pro-con mock debate portion, which is always very fun for everyone typically except me since I always lose. But the question that we have on tap for us today is hiring outside consultants, is it worth it? And so, Christina, which side would you like to take? Yes, it is worth it or no, oftentimes it's not worth it. I, well, I'm, never, I'm neither yes or no, but what I, my position will be, for the most part in my experience, the answer is no. <laughs> I love it. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Why don't you make an opening statement on how oftentimes it is not worth it to hire outside consultants? 
and I'm come and I'm, I would like to preface this with is as I do do consultant work. <laughs> so I love it. Okay. I'm coming at this from a, both a organizational perspective as well as a consultant perspective. And I come at it as I think more often than not, a lot of smaller organizations um, think that a consultant will fix their problems. And it oftentimes is not the correct use of a consultant. I think in the proper context and in the proper understanding of a consultant's function, they can be um, indispensable and absolutely wonderful. But I, my problem is I think most small organizations, that's most of my, my experience, um, um, place too much importance on and, and credence on what a consultant can do. And oftentimes it just ends up, here's a binder full of ideas that you'll never be able to enact. Fascinating. That is a great point. I was, you've sort of anticipated most of my counter arguments that <laughs> there's probably a great role for consultants in, in very bounded and very specific and very well thought out ways. So mm-hmm. if an organization tactically wants to improve an element of something or wants to create a new fundraising channel that they don't have any experience with, I feel like it's almost impossible that they'd be hurt by talking to someone who does have a lot of experience in that particular channel. But I would agree with you that the sense of, okay, I'm just going to pay someone to basically outsource my problem and they will solve Mm -hmm. all of the problem and they will put the organization on their back probably does not exist. Um, And people think that it does. So interesting. What types of, so maybe let's talk about some of the consulting work that you've done since that um, will be very practical for folks. What are the circumstances where you as a consultant are able to make the most impact? I personally like to look at each organization individually and say, what is it you think you need? Because a lot of times smaller organizations are run really from the heart with a lot of mission-centered focus without, especially the newer organizations, without a lot of that organizational or structural experience necessary. So if I sit down and ask a a smaller organization, what is it that you see as your needs? And then help them frame that in terms of practical, um, you know, nonprofit practical um, applications. So, okay. So we need, um, I was just speaking with someone and they said, we need more grants. Okay. That sounds great. But then when you really um, delve in with them, they may not necessarily know what that means. You know, do you need um, operating funds? Do you need um, expansion? Um, do you need staff? Um, do you need, um, and then getting into like, what do you even have to give to a grant? Um, what are your, so starting from base, from first base, which is what are you, what are your written, what's your narrative? What is your, what do you say you do and how do you say you do it? Um, so that you don't even, a lot of places don't even have a starting point. They just want you to go apply for grants. And I'm like, well, no, there's a, there's a whole lot of work before that can even be done. Um, so my job as a consultant is oftentimes I think to plant their feet firmly on the ground. And sometimes that means, yeah, I'm not going to sort of, um, blow smoke up. (laughs) You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to give you false hope. Let's, let's be practical because you can't grow unless you're being practical. Um, and then I'm very clear with, here's what I can do for you. And here's what I cannot do for you. Instead of saying, here's all the things I'm going to help you do vaguely speaking. 
It's okay. I will with your budget or no budget, here's what I can do for you. And so if I can get you to this point, point, let's get you to step three. Can you handle step four through six and really laying out all of the steps as tedious as they may be. And then telling them where your work stops. Um, but really helping them lay the the groundwork to get where they think they're already ready to go, because usually they're not ready to even go where they think they're ready to go. Certainly. And I love the example that you used. I feel like it would be very common to hear. We just need more money. We need more grants. We need more donations. We need more money. And drilling back to say, well, not necessarily. Actually, you need the things that will allow you to get more money consistently, Mm -hmm. scalably for the future. Brilliant. That is fascinating. Okay, well, thank you. We'll give the uh, we'll give the debate victory to you then. Um, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> congratulations! Yeah, very big prize associated with that. Um, we can jump into some more rapid fire questions. If you could describe yourself in one word, what would you say and why? Pragmatic, which is the most unsexy word, but um, I'm just very practical. And when I I think it's because I'm also in operations and development. And so I handle the finances as well. So I handle the incoming and the outgoing. So I'm just very pragmatic. I know how hard it is to make the money and how easy it is to spend it. And I also, because I'm accountable to my stakeholders, am always looking at how can I, if I'm making this expense or this investment here with this hard earned donation, donation dollars, how would I ever, how would I explain this to a donor? Um, and if I can't ever bring it back to the mission or, or expanding our mission, um, I don't do it. Um, and I always just try to stay mission centered, mission focused, even when I'm doing something that doesn't even seem particularly mission focused at the time. And I, I don't spend dollars easily. Um, because I just, I think I always bring it back to like, I know how hard it was for us to earn those dollars. And I know every, I know most of our donors, I know what they intend when they give me even 10 or 15 up to several thousand dollars. So I always keep that in front of mind. Absolutely. It's relational at the end of the day. Yes. Is there an exciting shift that you're seeing taking place in the nonprofit world that you think is actually really positive? I think, and I don't know if it's new, um, but just, I think the larger focus on data-driven evaluation, um, many, many years ago when I was starting, there was always evaluation, but I think it's gotten more intense that people want some accountability. I think sometimes it's a little too much because some things can't be put in numbers and that's just by virtue of what we do sometimes. Um, but in, in general, I think it's wonderful that, um, organizations are being forced to look at what they say they do versus what they actually do. Um, cause I think sometimes as nonprofits, we rest a little bit on our laurels and, and the qualitative anecdotal, um, what we call warm fuzzies, the things that we know we do well, but sometimes I think we should be forced or oftentimes we should be forced to really take a data-driven look at, um, are we doing to the best of our abilities, what we say we do, because especially us that have been around a long time, you can, you know, you get, you rest on your laurels. You've been around for 30, 40, 50 years. We know we do it. We, we do well. Um, but sometimes things shift, things needs shift from your population. So I think being forced to constantly reevaluate that you're best serving your target population is a wonderful trend. 
It's a great point. And right, it's interesting because you can only detect that shift potentially if you do have some metric that you're looking at mm-hmm. where there's, even if it's a survey at the end of a program or the end of a camp that, oh, people aren't rating it quite as highly. I wonder what that mm-hmm. is. Let's dive into the weeds. Okay, we need to change this one thing. That's brilliant. And I think people get... um scared program wise whenever development people are like we need to do an evaluation they get really um you know they they don't like it um and it doesn't you're right it doesn't have to be super data heavy it doesn't have to be a ten thousand dollar consultant coming in designing an evaluation for you it can just be a survey monkey um um email um where you can track before and after feelings and and it doesn't have to be super high tech it can be whatever the abilities of your organization are um but also just showing your constituents that you do care about their experience is also goes, it, that also goes a long way. Absolutely. Is there something that you understand now as you look back over the course of your development career, your career in nonprofits, that you appreciate now that you didn't fully appreciate five or 10 years ago? Um, it, 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 it's a little... Uh, contradictory, but it's, um, and it, it's not necessarily organization, but, um, um, personal based, which is both taking credit for your work and giving credit to your team at the same time. So, um, I've just noticed throughout this 20 years that, um, uh, you're not necessarily going to always be given credit for your ideas. And so you need to learn to take credit for them when they are yours <laughs> um, and really own them and know your worth. And also always giving credit to the team and your, your development team or whoever helps you. Um, because the only nonprofits are usually understaffed, undermanned. Um, if you don't give credit where credit's due, they're I mean, they're not going to keep doing the hard work for less pay. So, and I've been on the receiving end of, on both sides. So like, just, just give credit where credit is due, bring your team up with you. Um, and, and, um, acknowledge great ideas and who they came from. Beautifully put. There's absolutely balance there, which I love that you called out sort of the, the lean one way or the other and trying to strike a balance. Thank you so much, Christina, for spending time with us. This has been fascinating. I love the stories that you've shared. They've actually been inspirational to me personally. Are there places, where should people look if they want to learn more about you or if they want to learn more about the organization? Oh, wonderful. Thank you um, for having me again. It was actually really fun to speak with you. Um, They can find me at consultkw.com, consult KW for Christina Wallace, and then also campdelcorazon.org, which means Camp of the Heart in Spanish. Um, And you can find me either one of those places. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Christina. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Growth Show presented by Nonprofit Megaphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast network. We appreciate your support. Until next time. 